Oh, technology. Uh, did you did you want to start follow up then? Yeah, let's start follow up. Okay. Did either of us get a chance to try the Fire Phone? No, I haven't yeah. had a chance to go to the AT and T store at all to try it out. Okay. Neither did I, but I I did look it up in it and confirm what you had thought about the scrolling. It does use the camera to assist in the tilt gestures to try and make those better. I guess that's good, but without using it, I don't know how good it does actually make it. I saw you sent me a link a while back that they had only sold anywhere between 35,000 to 50,000 phones. Yeah, that's sort of sad given the size of Amazon. I'm reminded of the Facebook phone, because they, they didn't sell very many of those either. But the difference between the Facebook phone and the Amazon phone is the Facebook phone didn't quite get as much advertising as the Fire phone does. Oh. When it comes to the Fire phone, you see ads on TV for it all the time. Ah, uh, I don't know what the ad situation on TV is, really. I don't mean to sound like one of those uh, snooty... I cut the cord, people, but I generally don't watch that much TV, unfortunately. I watch a little bit of TV, but I mostly skip commercials, and then sometimes I forget to skip commercials and I'll see an ad for, you know, whatever. Ever since I got a TiVo in, like, 2002-ish, I have not been able to stand commercials. Oddly enough, I will still tolerate them online. I I cannot tolerate them if I am sitting in front of my TV. There is so much wrong with my TiVo. Like, uh, when it comes to my TiVo, I have to reset the switcher every week or so. Yikes. I have to reset the switcher, otherwise stuff doesn't record. That sucks. And then I'd have to reboot the TiVo itself, I'd say about once a month. Wow, I basically never reboot mine. What kind of TiVo do you have now? I have the TiVo HD, so it's fairly old. Okay. I have one of the Romeos. And how it's going right now, there are times where I wish that I never got it, that I just went back to the crappy DVR that comes from the no, cable company. Don't go there. There be demons. I would say dragons, but dragons are cool, and the DVRs from cable companies are not. Maybe I'm just better off cutting the cord like you did. <laughs> well, I didn't do it intentionally. I just ran out of time to watch TV. Okay, I guess we should continue with our follow-up. So, So it looks like... You put something in there that t- indicates that uh, console sales are up. I think I remember reading that as well. So it doesn't look like the PC will take over console sales anytime soon. The PS4 is selling better than the PS3, and the Xbox One is selling better than the Xbox 360. See, I was really surprised by this. I thought that my general disinterest in the Xbox One and the PS4 was indicative of how everybody felt. But I guess that just isn't the case. It's a common problem that people have is assuming... That their situation is like everyone else's situation, and their interest is like everyone else's interest. What consoles do you have right now? I have pretty much everything. I have a Wii U, I have an Xbox One, I have a PS4. Which do you use the most? Probably the Xbox One. The Wii U is very close. Is it a games thing with the Xbox One, or is it the TV slash media functionality that it has? About half and half. A lot of the use that I get with the Xbox One is actually my son's use because he plays Forza all the time. Nice. And then we play Mario Kart. All of us play Mario Kart. Me, Yurong, and uh, Seth. Uh, Miranda doesn't yet, but she's only one. So. And then for the PS4, the major thing that I play is actual, actually Pixel Junk Shooter, which I got because it was free with PlayStation Plus. And I played that with uh, Seth a lot. I'm actually debating getting a PlayStation 4 for Geometry Wars 3 and The Binding of Isaac. Oh, they're not doing... They're not putting Geometry Wars 3 on the Xbox One? 
They actually are, but I'm thinking of using it as an excuse. Oh, okay. I don't have either an Xbox One or a PS4. I have a Wii U, but that's not really next gen. Yeah, it's it's really tough decision to make because in most aspects, I prefer the Xbox One. I like the controller better. The interface, while not as nice as the 360 interface, I like better than the PS4 interface. Just in general, I like the Xbox One better, but the PS4 has a better GPU. Has a better GPU. I mean, it's sort of like a struggle there because I want the th- I want the games that look the nicest, but I I want all those other nice features. And also, a lot of my friends have an Xbox One, so if I want to play games with them, usually the Xbox One is where they are. For me, the major point of contention with all these new consoles is backwards compatibility. Because in the case of my TV, my TV has a limited number of HDMI slots. In order to get a new console, I'm basically going to be disconnecting one of my old consoles. So say, for instance, I get an Xbox One, I'll have to disconnect either my PS3 or my Xbox 360. No, you wouldn't. You could plug the 360 into the Xbox One. What's the latency on that, though? It's not great, but it depends on what kind of games you want to play. Then I run into the whole limit of space. Oh, I, then... what, I, what I did, though, is I plugged my TiVo into my Xbox One, and that works great. Uh-huh. Uh, another nice thing about that is that with the voice commands, it works with the TiVo. So if you, you can go and say, Xbox, pause, and it will pause your TiVo. Uh, do you have to have a USB connection running from one no, to the uses, other? No, it has an IR blaster. Oh, okay. So it just does it the same way as your remote would. So uh, have you had a chance to try out the Hyperlapse app from Instagram? I, I did try it out. Uh, I I played with it a little bit. I know that you posted a few videos that you had recorded with it. Are you happy with the results? Yeah, I am pretty happy with it. When I tried it out, I didn't have anything to really hold my phone on. So the phone was resting on the dash of my car mm-hmm. against the windshield. So when I would go over bumps, there would be a lot of shaking up and down. Okay. All things considered, though, it compensated pretty damn well. Are you familiar with how Hyperlapse works? Uh, to my understanding, the way Hyperlapse works, the... Let's, let's uh, back up. What does Hyperlapse do? Hyperlapse is recording things really, really fast. The difference between that and time-lapse is Hyperlapse tries to compensate for shakiness within the camera. So in the case of Microsoft, Microsoft had a demonstration of Hyperlapse a few weeks ago where they strapped a GoPro camera on top of a person and had them do things like climbing, hiking, etc. Now, when they do things like climbing, since the camera is shaking a lot, if you end up just speeding up the footage, it turns into a random garbled mess of images that's hard to watch. Now, what this does is it smooths out the images and it chooses it selectively so that the camera angle ends up changing gradually over time. So it appears like a smooth traversal. Okay. I guess maybe we should differentiate the hyperlapse that's created by uh, Instagram and the hyperlapse that's made by Microsoft. So for the hyperlapse that's made by Instagram, they did it in a completely different way than Microsoft did. The one that was done by Instagram, what they did is essentially do image stabilization. 
Previously, if you wanted to do image stabilization in a clean way, you would have to analyze each frame, go frame to frame, and find the common elements in each frame and find an offset. And if you're feeling particularly fancy, a rotation based off of uh, how the stuff in the image went. And a good way of doing that, uh, though it's a little bit slow, is called optical flow. Uh, instead of doing something like that, what the Instagram one did is it uses the accelerometer in your phone to determine how much each image is offset from each other and then applies that to the image. And then it zooms in a little bit so the jaggies on the outside are, are, are not visible. So you only see the stabilized image. This method is similar to what I did when I implemented image stabilization for a camera that was mounted on a mast, except that I didn't have an accelerometer. So I did it basically the previous way going frame to frame. Is it the accelerometer or is it a gyroscope? I'm sorry, the gyroscope, you're right. You could do similar things with an accelerometer, but you need... I actually think you would want both in order to get the most precise results. What I had seen on the Instagram article is that they only used the gyroscope. I didn't okay. see anything about accelerometer at all. Okay. Well, then pretend that I said gyroscope then. But still, uh, I think gyroscope is more useful simply because you're looking at an orientation change. Mm-hmm. And that's where much of the shakiness comes from. Ideally, you would want to compensate for translation, rotation, and scaling, but not in such a way that you're used to scaling, like going back and forth, but more of a dealing with uh, camera warping and how that would affect the scaling. As I mentioned, like optical flow takes care of all those things. It's just computationally expensive. And also computationally expensive is the way that Microsoft accomplished this. Do you know what they did? Uh, my understanding is that Microsoft tried to calculate the relative direction of each image and then go through and choose an image that is the mean direction, like the closest towards what direction it should be pointing over a course of however long within the time lapse. That is how they chose the direction that the camera is pointing and how it flies through. But the difference is, while the Instagram one is pure image stabilization, the Microsoft one builds a 3D scene. If you have enough data points for what it thought was in a particular location, you could fly arbitrarily through that scene. And you'll notice in their example that there's a place where the real camera does like a loop and goes all around and look, whereas the one that is flying through their scene just goes straight ahead and doesn't even do that. If you take a video with the hyperlapse with the Instagram and you move it up and down very quickly around your room, it's still going to move up and down really quickly. It's not going to try and do a, a very smooth camera transition. It's basically going to speed up frame to frame. I'm pretty sure that the Microsoft people are very upset that the Instagram one is getting all this press because what they did is far more technically impressive. Granted, with Microsoft, Microsoft Solution doesn't include any sort of gyro information. They're actually piecing together an image with a lot less data. Yeah, and that, that even makes it more impressive because it's based off of the imagery that they're getting itself. Now, one thing I noticed with the Microsoft presentation, the Microsoft presentation had these still frames where it looked like people were skating when it, whenever they walked. It looked kind of like uh, Quake World back in the day when you were playing on a modem where you would just see a still frame of a person with say one left foot or so extended out. And then you look a second later and it looks the same. It looks like the person is captured in time 
Right. And that's sort of a consequence of the way that they decided to do it. When you're going and you're building a scene, you have data for a lot of points. So you can build a train pretty well, but you might, might not have continuous data for moving objects. So the objects that are moving, like people that are walking, they, they have some time frames for them, but they don't have other ones. So they have to guess at what those other frames were, and that ends up making them look like they're skating. In the case of Instagram, I think the result is better looking, although the Microsoft one is more technically impressive. If you go and you make a real, like a, a real 10x or 100x uh, speed up, the one that you do on the Microsoft one is going to look much smoother because they can, they can go and fly through a scene in any arbitrary, in, in any way. Whereas the Instagram one, they can't correct the course at all. It is going the way that you were. It's just, it looks like it was put on a steady cam. So if your intent is to have something that flies in a particular way, but it was put on a steady cam, then the Instagram one will look better. If you're driving, for example, the other example that the Microsoft one had where they're climbing and the, and it's mounted on their helmet, the Instagram one is going to look almost unwatchable, just like the original footage from the climbing in the Microsoft one before they had trans uh, transformed it. So did you see anything about render time on the Microsoft example? I actually don't remember seeing anything about render time. Did, did you happen to see anything? No, I didn't. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, for the Instagram one, do you have any idea if it's using the 120 frame per second mode? You would hope so, but I really don't know. Yeah, the reason I'm asking is I did an example in 1x mm -hmm. on my phone where I just swivel my phone across pretty much following a car as it uh, travels by me. And on 1x, it looks as if it's being filmed in slow motion, except it's actually real time. It's a really interesting effect. It's possible that they're using the frame data from the increased speed. I know that I would want more data. Maybe they didn't do that and they do some interpolation between frames as well uh, as what they had said that they were doing regarding the stabilization. The main downside to using 120 frames a second on the iPhone 5S is that you only get 720p instead of 1080p. And in the case of the Instagram app, it's already zooming in a little bit. So the video appears a little more fuzzy than a regular sort of recording. Did you notice if it was 720p or not, the final output? I haven't actually looked at the file itself on a computer or anything like that to see what the resolution is. I just noticed that there seemed to be a difference where it looked not necessarily more pixelated, but just fuzzy for lack of a better term. Even if they used the 1080p, they would they're still zooming in a little bit. So they and then after they're done zooming in, I they still scale it. So there's still there would still be scaling artifacts that could cause some fuzziness even if they are doing the higher definition mode. I don't think they're zooming in that much, but I could see the interpolation being You actually don't have to zoom in that much to get good stabilization. When I wrote some image stabilization for an image that was 4,000 by 2,600, it required about 50 pixels of zoom in order to, in order to look good. Does this scale along with resolution or is it just a certain percentage of the image that you would have to zoom in? So the number of pixels that you would have to do is more related to how, how zoomed in you're looking than it does the number of pixels that are in the camera. So I guess it would, it would scale. You would have to use more pixels if you have a higher resolution. But another effect to consider is how far zoomed in the camera is. Got it. So do you think it was the right move for them to bundle this within a separate app? 
it may have gotten less press if it was just a feature that was included with Instagram. That makes sense. I just didn't really buy into their rationale. They had said that with Instagram that they wanted to have something as simple as possible. However, when you look at something like, for instance, the iPhone camera on iOS 8, iOS 8 is now going to have time lapse mm-hmm. built into its primary camera app. So I look at that and I think, well, why can't something like that be built into something like Instagram? Now, have you tried the time lapse on iOS 8? Yeah, I have. It's pretty nice. It doesn't do any kind of interpolation or anything like that, but it's useful for some shots. Okay. I really hope that Apple will include something like this within iOS 9. I would be extremely surprised if Apple did not modify their time lapse to be able to take, to be able to take more steady shots. Well, fingers crossed. Also, with the Apple time lapse, I'm not entirely sure if their sampling rate has become lower or not, uh, or if it was the same sampling rate and they just reconstruct. Do you know? No, I don't know. Since it might be that in order to save battery life that they reduce their sampling rate. So let's get into our, our main topic for today. I think today we're going to talk about computer literacy. Maybe it would be instructive to have our own history with computers discussed. So in my case, I've had a computer in my household as long as I can remember. I actually think my family had one before I was born. I learned my shapes and my colors through a program my father wrote for me on an old VIC-20, one of those old Commodore big keyboards which plugged into a TV. So I learned my shapes and colors that way. I had my first computer in my room when I was five years old. I had one of those Commodore pet computers with the uh, green screen. One time when I was five, my father had some guests over, and on a napkin, he wrote down a program, and he said, type this into the computer and type run. Now, it was a program that said, Anna is a nincompoop 10,000 times, Anna being my older sister. Later, around the time I was seven or eight, I learned my multiplication tables through a program that he wrote. He actually wrote a program where it would compliment me if I got the answer to a question right, and it would insult me if I got the question wrong. (laughs) Tough love. (laughs) Yeah, tough love. So when I was somewhere between eight and nine years old, I got a uh, Tandy HX1000. It was one of those old machines that had no hard drive. It just had a floppy disk drive. And if you turned on the computer without a floppy disk drive, it ended up going to DOS 2.11. Now, this version of DOS wasn't on an internal hard drive. It was hard-coded onto a ROM chip. So the C drive actually didn't do anything at all. Like, you couldn't write files to it. It's just something so the machine would boot if there was nothing. After that... I used that machine to connect to services like Prodigy and BBSs through the computer before the World Wide Web opened up. When I was 13, I got my family's old 286 and then started upgrading it incrementally. (laughs) I learned how to take computers apart, install new CPUs, install video cards, sound cards, that sort of thing. And around that time, I started going into QBasic, then later Visual Basic, and then started learning C and C++. Then I went to college and got a job in computers, so that's pretty much it. And my my history is somewhat similar to yours. Like in your family, my family was an early adopter of computers. I'm very fortunate that they got them pretty early. I think they first got an Apple IIe, and then right very shortly after the first Macintosh was released, they got one of those. 
So the Macintosh is the computer that I learned how to do my first computing with. And I stayed a relatively novice user for a while until I was, I think, in sixth grade when I insisted that my parents get a color Macintosh instead. Previous to this, I had actually used Prodigy uh, as a VBS, but not much else. They did eventually get a Mac LC, which was the color Mac that we got. Originally, when they first got it, they were all paranoid about me breaking something, but it wasn't too terribly long before I was more competent with it than they were. And I did, of course, break lots of things and have to reinstall the OS many times. Until this time, I was still completely ignorant of programming languages. And I really wanted to make programs, but I had no idea how I would go about doing that. And either I didn't ask my parents, or maybe they didn't have a good guidance in that look, in, in that aspect. But for whatever reason, uh, I didn't really know what I needed to do to make a program. And so I discovered a, a tool called ResEdit. I'm sure a lot of old Mac users are aware of this tool. And I used that to inspect applications that were already on my Mac. Uh, there's an Asteroids game that I would edit all of the graphics for. And so it would have new graphics that had like a little lightning circling the asteroids and, and animated and whatnot. But it, it still wasn't what I was looking for. And I found the code, the binary code for it. I, I looked at it. It was completely unintelligible. I would, I was able to find like some strings that were in there that made sense. But for the most part, I had no idea what to do with it. And I didn't realize that it had to have been, that it needed to have been compiled. So I just assumed that I needed to, to learn a lot at that time. A little later than that, still, still, I think sixth grade though. I was on a BBS uh, because at this point in time, I had discovered the wonderful uh, Computer Edge magazine that had a list of all the local BBSs that I could then dial. And one of my friends was on one of the, those BBSs, and he had mentioned as a hobby that he liked making computer programs in QBasic. And I was like, huh, so that's a way to do it. And I looked and nope, no, no QBasic on my Mac. Like, I couldn't find anything on my computer that was similar. I, I didn't think about it for a little while after that, and I was going through a bunch of my parents' books. One of these books was the AppleSoft Basic Manual, the command reference. So I'm like, ah, oh, score, uh, uh, basic, this is a programming language, I can make programs. And I asked if I could use their old app. At this point, it was an Apple IIgs that was the other machine that we had. Uh, I typed in the commands that I found in the command reference, and I sort of cobbled together programs basically by doing treasure hunts for commands to use. And later on, uh, I found an introductory book uh, that talked about uh, a better ways for me to have actually done things. Even later than that, someone gave us a really old... PC, which did have QBasic on it, so I was able to talk to my friend about it there. And I did the sort of standard stuff like editing Gorilla and Nibbles. <laughs> oh, yeah. From there, I learned about an application on the Mac called Future Basic. And Future Basic was basically basic plus functions, so it no longer had you type in the line number. Uh, it, it wasn't quite what Visual Basic ended up being, but it was... It was still a lot nicer than what I had been using, and I could access uh, resources and whatnot on my Mac. And from there, I went to doing the AP computer science class in high school, and then I 
went to college and got a computer engineering, computer science degree. Now I write uh, software for a living. And that, that, is, that is my history. There's a particular article that was actually published a while ago that is sort of going to anchor our discussion. So the article is called Kids Can't Use Computers and This Is Why It Should Worry You. And it's on the Coding to Learn website. I think maybe we should start off by having a little overview of what the article is about. So the article is about how a large percentage of society doesn't know how to use the devices they have. They don't know how to set things up properly. They don't know how to protect their data. If something goes wrong, they don't know the first thing about learning how to troubleshoot it. And there's a very choice quote within the article that says, quote, they click OK in dialog boxes without reading the message. They choose passwords like QWERTY1234. They shut down by holding the power button until the monitor goes black. They'll leave themselves logged in on a computer and walk out of the room. If a program is unresponsive, they'll click the same button repeatedly until it crashes altogether. The article discusses the failure of schools and parents to teach children computer literacy. It also goes into the effects of desktop and mobile OS software abstracting away all the details so the average user doesn't have to understand how things work anymore. So the article talks a lot about people that can't use computers for one or one reason or another. They talk about the person that said that their said that their internet wasn't working because they were missing proxy settings. And the same person that had their PowerPoint that wasn't working because their video was from a remote server that was blocked. They had an example of a kid saying that they had a virus when they didn't and other things like that. I noticed that the the author of the article seems to be grouping different kinds of computer usage into the same bucket. And from my perspective, there's basically three different trees of knowledge. The first is computer usage. The second is computer administration. And the last one is computer and software engineering. Computer usage would include things that you need to do in order to get your work done on the computer. Moving the mouse, typing, poking at a screen. Something that's shallow in this tree would be things like that that I just said. But there's also a deeper level of this tree. The, the deeper level of using a computer would be something like knowing the specific UI differences between GIMP and Photoshop. You wouldn't expect everyone to know those things, but they fall in the same tree. Computer administration are things that are configuring and maintaining your computer. Something that's low level on this tree would be understanding what your system preferences are. Something that's sort of a mid-level would be being able to reinstall your operating system. And something that's deep on the tree might be something like configuring send mail or bind on a Linux server. I'm not a professional administrator, so some people might still consider that shallow. The last tree that I see here is computer engineering, software engineering. That tree is constructing the software that goes, that goes onto the computers. And something shallow here would be like basic HTML, creating a basic HTML page. And that might actually even be not as shallow as you can even get in this tree. Something deep on this tree is being able to design a compiler that would be then used to build other applications. That is sort of the, the framework that I perceived this article from. My problem with what he had said is that 
a lot of these please fix my computer kinds of tasks that he considers them because they're not able to do them, not able to use computers, go into the, the, the administration tree, not the computer usage tree. Another thing about the computer administration tree is this is the tree that people automatically assume that you know when you say that you have a computer science degree. So if I tell someone I write software, they go, oh, can you fix my computer? It's broken. And just because you have a computer science degree doesn't mean that you have deep knowledge in the administration tree and vice versa. There's another problem that I've seen with some of the other examples that this person used to posit that that computer that people and kids cannot use computers and that is some of the actual things that are classified under usage are deep on the usage tree or sort of obsolete as in these are things that advances in usability computer usability should address on their own and shouldn't be the responsibility of the user to learn you had divided computers into usage, administration, and programming. Now, with something like, say, for instance, one of the examples was that the person couldn't connect to the internet because the little switch on the side of their computer that turned the Wi-Fi off wasn't turned on, so therefore they couldn't connect. Does that fall under administration or does that fall under usage? So I have a couple of issues with that example. One is I would agree that this is administration, actually. It is something that is used to set up your computer. Now, you could argue that, well, if you take that to its logical extreme, pressing the power button would be administration then. And I, I really do think that that being able to press the power button is usage in most cases. But in this particular case, most users will just keep their wireless card turned on and they never have to touch it again. And... The, the, the situations where you would even ever have to do that nowadays are completely limited. Now, you can argue that this person does not have very good troubleshooting skills and that in the process of troubleshooting, they should have found out that their wireless card was turned off. But troubleshooting is not, is not a computer usage skill. It's just a general life skill. So in that case, what do you believe people should be able to know? Do you think that they should have any sort of computer administration skills, even on like the lowest level? In order to be considered a computer user, what, what kinds of things should you know? I think that computer users should have some basic skills. They should have skills like typing, mousing, pointing, and navigating a user interface. They should know how to do navigation in a web browser because that's an extremely common sk skill these days. In the past, I wouldn't have considered it a necessary skill, but now I do because it's an extremely common use case. They should know how to use the features in their software that they have to use in order to get work done. So if they're competent in using the software that they know how to get work done, they should be considered a computer user. They should know how to pick a password. They should know what a backup is and if their work is being backed up. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that they should know how to do the backups themselves. That would be an administration skill. Now, I should note that missing one of these skills does not necessarily mean that they can't use a computer. The person in the article would cite one example for these people and say they can't use a computer. I think that everyone is lacking in some of these skills, even the basic ones. For example... For the picking a good password, almost everyone has passwords somewhere that suck. Uh, John Carmack, 
He had his Twitter account hacked. Do you think that it was Twitter's fault? Probably not. He probably picked either either picked a bad password or he used a password on multiple sites and one of those sites got hacked. Does that make John Carmack a bad computer user? Probably not. Just because you don't have a complete knowledge of all the basics doesn't mean that you can't use computers. Just like missing a couple of questions on a driver's test doesn't mean that you don't know how to drive a car. Do you have any interest in hearing what I have to say about uh, where I think that uh, skills that I think that administering a computer and being a software engineer or a programmer, these kind, the kind of skills that these things teach you that are useful in everyday life, but aren't necessarily computer usage skills? Sure. Go ahead. While I don't think that everyone necessarily needs to learn how to administer a computer, I do think that they teach important skills. And you can get these skills through administration of computers, or you can get these skills some other way. One of those things is basic troubleshooting skills. That includes some basic heuristics, like looking at error messages, searching Google. Beyond heuristics, it becomes very similar to being able to employ the scientific method, which which is taught in schools totally unrelated to computing, but you can apply the same skills. You would make a hypothesis on what went wrong. You would test that hypothesis, and you would learn information from that uh, test that you can then apply to your next step. In addition to that, troubleshooting and software engineering teach you how to traverse abstractions. In most areas of work, it's useful to be able to understand at least one level of abstraction below the level that you're working at. This is often taught by troubleshooting, where when something goes wrong, you dig a little deeper and and pierce the abstraction layer to poke at other things that were hidden previously. When something doesn't work at what you're when you expect, you then make adjustments. Now, it's also useful to be able to abstract a problem. That way, you can forget about those parts of the problem that you don't have brain power for in order to better focus on the overall problem at hand. That's taught less by troubleshooting, which is mostly delving deeper, and more by software engineering, which requires going both down and up levels of abstraction. I guess uh, what it comes to is that I think you and I have a disagreement on what amount of responsibility somebody should have with their own devices. Okay, so what's your what's your take on this then? Like My take on it is that people should be able to at least manage their information, back it up, restore it, and potentially transfer it between computers. They should know how to use a browser. They should know how to use email. They should be able to use Google in order to find something if they don't know how to do something specifically. And they should be able to do something basic administrator-wise, such as running an antivirus program and being able to spot a fake. My rationale for this is that Most people who have computers do not do any sort of real administration with it. They either just let it run and let it be until the thing dies, or they try and hand it off to somebody else whenever they get an opportunity to. The issue with this is that a lot of times people just simply don't hand it off to anybody. Either they say, okay, I'll deal with whatever problem I have right now, or I don't have anybody who can potentially help me with this issue. So the machine ends up becoming filled with 
spyware or it becomes part of a bot network or any number of things like that. So I would say that it is a problem that a computer user doesn't go and try and get the administration help that they need. Now, you would say that this might put a burden on people that know computers too much, but you don't consider a burden on people that know how to fix cars when people are trying to get their car fixed. They, they, those people know that they can pay money and get their car fixed. And similarly, you can pay money and get your computer fixed, or you can take it, in most cases, you can take it to, like, if you have a Mac, you can take it to an Apple store and often get it fixed for free or have them instruct you on the administration tasks that you need to do in order to get your problem fixed for free. Most work environments have a IT department that will help their users do all the administration tax tasks that have been discussed previously. And for the, in the case of uh, antivirus software, well, first of all, if you keep your system up to date, then you shouldn't, in most cases, need antivirus software these days. And keeping your system up to date should be the responsibility of the operating system, not the user. In cases where it is the responsibility of the user, it should be the responsibility of an administrator of a set of computers and not the end user themselves. And so far as not getting scammed, that's more of a life skill. In real life, you when you open your mail at home and you see a letter that's from a Nigerian prince, which is how they used to do it before they did email, you should know this is probably not legitimate. It is true that computer users should also know, have the understanding that these things are not legitimate. But that's more of a life skill. That's more of a try and understand where people might want to lie to you and be able to detect these lies. And you want to be able to detect lies in all of life. That's a life skill. So I think part of the problem, like you said, is the fact that people don't do any kind of maintenance, especially if they have no idea how to do maintenance. It is the equivalent of having an old car and not doing oil changes on it until the point that the car completely dies. And some people do that, but I'd still say that they know how to use a car. Now, most people know that you have to get your oil changed because they don't want their car to die. That's part of the reason that cars have those little lights that go on to remind people, hey, you you need to do something about this. That's part of the user interface. So they don't rely on the user knowing that they need to do the administration-like task with their car. They prod them to go and do it. An example of... Uh, something that you might say about computers where they get prodded is the kid that didn't read the error message when he couldn't connect to the network. I agree, people should stop and look at error messages, but it doesn't matter who you are. Almost nobody reads error messages. There's lots of articles on uh, the old new thing, the, the, the blog by Raymond Chen at Microsoft, where he talks about problems that programmers had that could have been easily solved if they had just bothered to read the error messages that are pro provided by the operating system. And these are smart, computer-savvy people that are asking these questions that it could have been solved by reading error messages. So maybe there's something wrong with error messages. Maybe there needs to be another user interface element that is able to coax users into doing what the system needs in order to work properly. Why does that work with a car, though? That in the case of a car, you have something like the check engine light, or a warning saying, it's time to go get an oil change. But nothing similar like that happens with a computer. With a car, they have one or two things that they do, and that's it. And a lot of people complain that they had to take their car into the mechanic to 
turn off their check engine light because it was actually something absolutely stupid that their car wanted them to do. Like some sensor got overloaded and tripped this one time and that turned on their check engine light and they can, and it will never turn itself off. But they, they still have to take it in. But because there's only one light that if you, if the light comes on, you know what to do. With computers, there's not one, go take this to your administrator light. There's tons of different error messages and it's, and users are not helped by the fact that the, a lot of times, these error messages are completely useless. If you see an error message that says error negative 309, you have no idea what to do. So you just ignore it because most of the time when you ignore it, it does what you expect later. And so that's a failing of the software. So over time, there's been so many failings of software that people don't read their error messages anymore. So what do you see a solution being to this sort of issue? If you look at mobile, which is what the author was so terrified of, you, f- you find that users are able to use mobile extremely well. They can do almost everything, and that's because the administration of mobile devices has been abstracted out of them. You no longer have to care. If you take, you probably will never get quite that far, but if you take the same general ideas and apply them to general purpose computers, you'll get similar results. You need messages that make sense. You need when the computer wants you to do something and it's not something physical that they have to do, there needs to be something in the message itself telling you what you need to do to fix it. Air messages that get displayed need to be consistently good air messages or the users will never start learning from them. In the case of a car, a lot of the time, the message, like for instance, the light that comes on within the car, isn't something being wrong with the car. It is actually part of a timer, where after so much time, you're supposed to go in and have the car serviced. Do you see something like this equivalent for computers that would actually be beneficial or even feasible? I think that with a car, there's there's wear and tear that don't occur as much with computers. A better route to go is making sure that computers are auto-updating themselves and become more like mobile devices in usage and the amount of knowledge that's required in order to use them properly. So you're proposing the amount of knowledge in order to use a computer should go down with time. Yes, and it actually has been. And this is a good thing. The author says that it's a bad thing because they think that you're no longer learning about how the computer works. But I think it's a good thing because it allows you to focus on the problem that you have in your head. Not everyone should have to think about the kinds of things that we think about. We need to know all about computers because they're related to the kinds of problems that we need to solve. Regular people shouldn't have to solve computer problems. They should solve the problems that they're specialized in. One area that it becomes a bit tricky is in the area of legislation. So a lot of people complain that legislators don't know enough about technology to do any legislation. What are your thoughts on this? The problem with being a legislator is that they basically have to know just about everything. That they're voted in for a handful of issues that people care about, such as taxes and social rights. But the people who are then put in have to be in charge of a whole bunch of issues that they don't know about and may not necessarily even care about. Now, you can't have somebody that knows absolutely everything. You can't have a person who's a doctor, a lawyer, a physicist, a biologist, all of these things, and knows everything within a field. So 
Instead, what happens within the legislature is that they end up becoming part of something like a committee or a subcommittee. Now, in the case of a committee, a committee is something where there are 10, 15 senators, for instance, within the Senate, where they have more in-depth knowledge about a specific topic at hand. Except that they don't a lot of times. The problem with the committees is that even then, the people who are in charge end up knowing more about an issue, but they don't know enough to really be useful within the issue that they're trying to address. This is part of why I think that in addition to having committees, we need to make sure that the individual politicians have good advisors. Like you mentioned earlier, a politician can't know everything. They can't even know close. They, they can barely even know the laws that are, they, they are themselves are drafting. But they, what they have to be able to do, what a legisl, what a legislator has to be able to do is be able to communicate their position to the public and they have to be able to pick good advisors. If a, if a, if a legislator can do those two things, I think that they can legislate effectively. Now, for the picking good advisors, we run into a problem that a lot of times legislators are very insulated in who they know. They might not know people that, that are qualified on these areas that can inform them. And it is more difficult for them to find these people. And then by default, they end up having somebody like a lobbyist being the person that the senator is most likely to listen to in this case. This is a problem for pretty much every area of legislation. For environmental issues, we have environmental lobbyists and the politician can't know everything. Uh, Military issues, we have lobbyists in the defense industry. Uh, The agriculture industry, we have lobbyists there as well. And what we have to do is try and pick advisors that instead of being representatives of companies, they're experts in the field on their own right. And some of the times lobbyists are experts in the field. But you still have to try and be cognizant of their own political biases there. I think part of the issue as well is there is no solid metric on being able to choose a good advisor. And I don't think that there ever will be, unfortunately. But then in the case of, for instance, a senator or a congressperson, when they choose their aides, they're not following a specific guidebook on how to choose an aide that is good to them or that is good for them. As far as I know, they can basically pick whoever they want, which may be handed out via political favors, for example. If their technology advisor is handed out as a political favor, then their technology decisions might not be very good. So all things considered, do you think the situation with things like legislature will become better or worse when it comes to technology? It's really hard to know. A lot of it really depends on who the politicians end up trusting. So part of the problem with technology specifically is there's a cost center mentality to it. People that are in charge look at the engineers and the other people working in technology as a cost that they have and something that they have to deal with instead of actually being regular people. Part of that problem is created by the people in technology themselves by doing things like saying, oh, you don't know how to use a computer, or even pointing at other geeks and going, ha ha, you don't know this information. And this sort of culture of geeks putting other geeks down because they don't know some sort of trivial information. In order for politicians to pick good advisors, they have to start seeing engineers as more like equals than like someone that they have to deal with. I think that was one of the things that the person covered within the article, 
the fact that he was kind of looked down upon because he was the IT person. And then when it turns out that, oh, he teaches as well, the person who was having their computer fixed looked at him differently. But even there, he didn't do technology people favors. While he pointed out the very valid thing that he was looked down upon because he knew technology, he went right around and talked about how when the person said the internet isn't working, oh, let me go call the president, the internet's not working. Even though he didn't say it to that person, it's still very condescending. And it's very obvious that the person didn't really mean the internet is not working. There's an implied for my computer that was not said. This kind of condescension is part of why people want to stay away from people that are working in technology. Part of my concern is abstraction making the issue worse, where there will be even more of a rift in time between people who are using computers and people who know how to administer them and or program for them. It is true that there will be probably more of a rift, but I think that the positives outweigh the negatives. It, it is still more important for these people to be able to understand their own problems quickly and be able to solve their own problems quickly than it is for them to be able to solve computer problems. Again, that you, you can look at cars. It's more important for me when I was actually, when I actually had a car, it was more important for me to be able to get to work and get home reliably than it was for me to know how to fix my car or to be able to even maintain my car. I could change the oil, but I don't make fun of someone or I don't put down anyone that doesn't know how to change their oil, even though it can be a useful skill. There, There's legislation on automotive issues, and in, or, in order to make good decisions there, you still have to go and know the industry better than a regular person. You still have to know more about cars uh, than a regular person to legislate it properly. So the qualification there should be very similar to when you're working on something in general. It would be It's good to understand something at one level lower than you are working on it for. So a legislator, or at least the advisor for the legislator, if not the legislator, should understand the problem that they're trying to solve with the legislation at least one layer deeper than the legislation itself covers. That should help a lot in preventing bad legislation. I think it'll also get better in time because more of the people who are in charge will actually do more things on the internet. There will be more senators who do things like watch Netflix mm -hmm. and wonder why their Fios or their internet is slow. They'll wonder why their bill goes up by 10% year after year or something along those lines. And as time goes on, more of them will become gamers right? because it's part of the shift in culture. Whereas the internet was something that was on the outskirts of society within the 80s and even the beginning of the 90s, it's now shifting towards something that's a central part of society. Right. And, and I think that the increased abstraction helped that occur. Now, it, it used to be when I was in school that... The kids that knew how to even load up their computer and start a game were these geeky outcasts. And now everyone can do it. Computers are part of society. You're no longer a geek for owning a computer. You're no longer a geek for... They're an essential part of society now that aren't looked down upon. And that's because people are able to understand them better through abstractions. That said, even though there are more abstractions, it's, it's still easier than ever to dig down. Like I mentioned before, you don't even have to buy a compiler anymore. 
you can just download one for pretty much any operating system that you want to deal with and start doing work. You don't need to go and join a developer program. Even the consoles are opening up. Microsoft said that every Xbox is going to be a developer kit, and they haven't quite gotten that all set up yet. But theoretically, eventually, every de- <laughs> Xbox will be a developer kit. The costs are dramatically down from where they used to be to buy a developer kit for the Wii or for the Wii U. Even though there's uh, more abstractions helping people understand technology that to make it usable for them it's still easier than ever to dig down and get the knowledge if you want to get the knowledge i keep thinking of the apple IIe. how on the apple IIe, if you press the power and didn't have a floppy disk in you would be thrown into a basic terminal right away yeah and and that's and that's an example how things got a little bit worse before they got better (laughs) um with regards to being able to poke at things easily Mm-hmm. And and then, like I said, that that's why I had to go to the the Apple II in order to start programming myself. The PC, to its credit, I think has basically always had at least basic. Uh, though, in order to do any sort of real useful work, uh, much of its history did require purchasing something. So, what are your thoughts on teaching kids how to administer a computer? So, for administering a computer, I think that. Kids should be given the opportunity to do so, uh, if you can. Schools, it might not be practical. In my own home, I am probably going to let Seth administer his own computer when the following conditions are met. One, he asks for the permissions, which would mean that he ran into a limitation that he couldn't get past without administering his computer. And two, that he fully understands that it's not practical for me to fix the mistakes that he makes when he's an administrator. And if he makes a mistake, he's expected to figure out what to do in order to fix it. And at that point, I would happily open up administration to him. Are you saying on his own device or on any... Do you have family shared devices or would this be his own individual device that you're talking about? This would be on his own device. I need to get work done on my machine. If he messes up my machine, I'm in trouble. So I I can't let him have administrator rights on my machine, just like I wouldn't let you have administrator rights on my machine. Oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> yeah, well, nothing personal. It's just that I'd only let myself have, have administrator rights on my machine. So what about people who only have one device, say one computer? What's your take on that? So for the kids that are really itching to do computer administration, and they only have one machine, what I would do is probably set up a virtual machine for them. I would go and say, okay, what operating system do you want your machine to be? You'll have full permissions on this machine. What do you want it to be? And I would set up a a parallels instance because that's the one that I happen to use and have that operating system running under it and they can do whatever they wanted in that instance. Getting parallels or a virtual machine on your machine in the first place does require some skill. So if the kid is in a household where they don't have someone that could administer this for them, hopefully they have a parent that can take the machine to someone to be able to do that. And that might require paying someone to do it, but I don't think that the parent should necessarily also be obligated to understand it. And in this way, you can have a machine that the, that the, kid, can, that the kid can't mess up, but they can still administer it. I think one of the differences between now 
and back in the past was there was no real concept of administrators and limited users, especially back in the days of DOS and back in the days of Macintosh. And there was this implicit understanding that anytime you used a computer back then, that you could potentially mess it up. Do you think it's better now where everything is jailed and sandboxed and whatnot? Yes, I I think it's much, much better that everything is jailed and sandboxed. When you when you look at a sandbox on a computer, you're mostly protecting yourself. All of the applications by default on macOS now run in sandbox mode, even for administrators. Does that m- mean that you can't run things that are not sandbox? No, but it's good that the default is is, so you don't have to be afraid that something is going to mess up your computer. You can be more free to experiment with things when things are sandbox on the phone part of the reason that the app store is so popular is people are not afraid to download apps they know they know these apps are not going to screw up their phone because they trust apple to to keep them safe so they can explore more so let's look at the reverse that say you have a kid who has no interest in any sort of administration whatsoever are you okay with that i would certainly encourage my son to do administration, but like pretty much anything of interest, it's impossible to force someone to be interested in something. I try my very hardest to get him to be interested in things that I am because that's very convenient for me to be able to talk to him to, about those things. It allows me to sort of connect better with him if he's interested in similar things that I'm interested in. But I'm not going to force him to be interested in these things. And if he never wants to administer his own computer, then I guess he will never have to. And hopefully he'll be interested in other things that I can encourage him with, with, and he can learn about those things instead. I don't have kids yet, but if possible, I'd give them admin rights on their own machine as soon as they demonstrate that they don't mess up any of the local stuff they have right now okay. at the time. So you do it without them wanting it. The thing about it is I can see them wanting it. They will almost certainly want it at some point. They're going to want to install a game, or they're going to want to run a program that requires specific rights that their limited account won't have. Mm-hmm. It's almost certainly going to come up at some point. At least for kids of you or me, it would come up at some point. Yeah, and from my perspective, I figure that as soon as they want to do that, that then they will be in the position where they have to understand that in order for you to have this nice program or this nice thing, you are going to have more rights. And with great power comes great responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) And so your kids will swing into action. Exactly. Yeah, they'll swing into action and they'll accidentally wipe their hard drive and then they'll have to reinstall it all by themselves. So what are your thoughts on teaching kids how to program? What do you think is a good starting point for them? Since I like programming and I have a sort of geeky nature, I kind of started at birth with Seth. And by that, I mean, I wrote a program for him that he then completed with a semicolon that said, I have mastered life on the day he was born. And we compiled and ran this. I remember that. I feel bad for Miranda because I didn't do the same thing for her. Uh, It has nothing to do with being a girl. If she came first, she would have been the one to get a program. When Seth was two years old, 
uh, I introduced him to the max say command. For those of you, of you that don't know, the say command is you go to a terminal and you type say in a space and then the thing that you want to say. It's actually the thing that I use to make the podcast begin and podcast end on this podcast. And it will go and say whatever you want it to say. And I think this is a good first step because it teaches the kids that the computers can do something that you ask them to do and it will do exactly what you ask them to do. And in this case, say is an instruction given to the computer and the data is the thing that comes after it. And Seth has actually had a lot of fun. Mostly he'll just type random garbage. But sometimes he'll go and type his name and be very entertained when it says his name back to him. Beyond that, there's a a board game. And this board game is called Robot Turtle. What's it like? I mean, what's special about it? Robot Turtle is a board that you set up. And there is a turtle that is very similar in idea to the old logo turtles. And there is a gem. The objective is to get the turtle to the gem. Now, stuff that's in your way can be barriers or blocks of ice. And the player of the game, which is the kid, has cards that they use as instructions. They place down these cards, and then the computer, which is the adult, moves the turtle around according to their instructions. And they can do things like turn left or right, move forward, Uh, shoot a laser which melts the ice and then there's also boxes that can be pushed but not destroyed you can create some pretty challenging puzzles this way uh, just like you can create some pretty challenging uh, Sokobo puzzles Sokoban? What's the name of that pushing blocks game? I don't know what you're talking about. There's a blocks game, it's in NetHack uh, as a mini game and it's also a, a general puzzle game where you have boxes that you can push around and you're trying to get from one end to the other and whatnot anyway You can create that with this board, these puzzles, and then depending on how advanced the kid is, you can either have them play one card at a time, play three cards at a time, or try and make the entire program all at once to get the turtle directly from the beginning all the way to the gem. It has a frog that it uses as function. It calls it a frog function. Uh, So you can create a subroutine out of that that will then get repeated multiple times to optimize your solution. I'm reminded of Logo for some reason. Yeah, that's that's basically what it's based off of. Yeah, I remember using Logo in my elementary school when I was in first or second grade. Mm-hmm. For those of you who don't know, it was an old program for the Apple where you had a turtle, and what you would do is you would tell it to go in specific directions. And then you give it a number of instructions, and it can do things like draw shapes. And this works basically the same way. And the instructions are very similar. It's slightly more limited than Logo was, but... But it, it functions essentially the same way, and it's, it serves as a good introduction to how the computer will blindly follow your input. And with the subroutines, it also introduces a level of abstraction. Have you thought much about a first programming language? I, I thought a little bit about it. He does have a book, a children's programming book that does things in Python, though Yurong would be very unhappy if Python was his first programming language. I think she wants him to learn Haskell first. Purist. Yes. Well, I mean, Haskell is a lot like math, so it sort of has a purity to it that that she appreciates. See, I was thinking for an option, if I ever have kids, loading a virtual machine of an Apple II. (laughs) You're going to learn the same way I learned. Exactly. Uh, Like, just that you weren't an Apple II, you were um, a Commodore, right? 
Well, I had uh, when I had the pet, the pet had the same kind of interface as the Apple IIe, uh, okay. where you you turned it on and you would be directly within an interface where you could type basic. I see. I don't know if um, one of the differences I remember with the pet is that it had the load and the play command, which mm-hmm. I don't know if the Apple II had that. I had a little tape deck on top of the Commodore PET where you would actually put in a cassette tape. You could actually use audio tapes for loading and saving your programs. That's old school. Yeah, really, really old school. Yeah, I used to do that. I used to write programs. I used to save them and load them and, you know, just do my thing with that. Cool. And I'm guessing that part of the appeal there is the directness. Yeah, I like the idea of that. I like the idea of them thinking that it's this computer within a computer mm-hmm. where they have direct control and can do, you know, can basically do things to do interesting things within that really simple interface. It, even starting graphics programming is easier because all you have to do is write a specific location in memory and all of a sudden it appears. Right. Um, I remember within BASIC there was something called the poke command. Right, right. Which uh, I wasn't that advanced at the time. What I used to do is I uh, I made a program that did a for loop between one and sixty five thousand, and it would <laughs> it would poke every single value with a zero, either nice. a one or a zero. And the really cool thing is that you would see the operating system completely garble up in completely random and unpredictable ways every single time you did that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that reminds me when I was in my computer science class in high school, I, I made some sort of programming error when I was doing a, when I was doing a linked list implementation for a word processor. What it ended up doing was rewriting a whole bunch of stuff in memory and then due to some sort of other bug on disk. So it basically completely destroyed the computer. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> when I rebooted, like, Lines of code from my program would appear when I did like the, the, uh, what is it? The DIR command to, to list the directory. Oh, uh, we had to reformat that. Oh, the bad old days of non-sandboxing. This, yes, this is why it's, this is why sandboxing is good for development. Right. So how about other options? Like, um, one option I thought of is if I ever had a kid, I would, teach them something like HTML first and then start them off with something light like JavaScript? Um, I don't know. The most important thing when you're, at least for me, when I'm trying to learn something is to be motivated to learn it. So in that respect, if I have a project, it's wonderful for me to learn something. So what I would want to do is wait for him or her, depending on which child wants to do it first, uh, to come to me and say that they they want to build something then i would pick or i would let them pick and give them guidance what is the most appropriate language to use in order to do that so if they wanted to make a high performance game for some reason and this might not be the ideal first project i might go and do something in c++ and opengl and if they wanted to make if they wanted to make a web page for their class i would go into basic html and javascript have you thought about getting them started with say for instance taking something existing that's easy to hack apart like uh for like me what, like what i did with uh nib with nibbles and gorilla yeah i was thinking of that the modern day equivalent would be the cookie clicker game oh 
Yeah, that would be pretty instructive. Or if they have like a, a little simple web game that they're really into, using that as sort of a base. Do you see something like Minecraft being useful? Minecraft is definitely something that is very instructive. You can build lots of things in Minecraft and functioning things. Now, a lot of it is less computery. You can sort of simulate computer operations with redstone, but most of it is is very simple switches and whatnot. So it's more it would be more mechanical engineering kinds of thing. But you still learn to abstract a problem to clear your head of things that you don't need to be thinking about. And you still need to be able to dive deeper to be able to place the individual blocks after you've determined your basic strategy. That might be good for an introduction to electrical engineering. You mean the redstone? The redstone, yeah. I, I don't know how useful it is because you, there's so much space that needs to be traversed in order to look through it. So it's so you don't have a very good overall view. Even if you zoom out, uh, there's still it's still hard to see how the way things work. Why don't we just put in some very brief conjecture about the September 9th announcement here, mostly just focusing on their giant building. Sure. My guess is basically, and there's a 80% chance that I'm wrong, is that this giant building is sort of a venue where they can show how their fitness wearables are usable in action. Like, for example, if you had a track that they're running around, they would show the actual people running around, and you can have real-time stats on these people that are running around. And that's sort of that's something that you might need a big venue for, to, a big extra building for. That's an interesting take. I was thinking that it may have to do with the iWatch being announced alongside it. The fact that if they're going to be introducing a new product category, that it makes sense to have even more people in there. The center that they're putting it in has about 2,000 people or so, right? It says 2,400. Yeah, it has 2,400 people, which compared to their other venues is absolutely massive. And they haven't really used this venue in a while. And it is also the venue where they first announced the Macintosh. So whatever they're doing, they probably think it's a pretty big deal. Yeah, I think it's uh, probably a bigger deal than the iPhone 6. I would hope so. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on the watch? I mean, are you excited? See, I don't even know that it's a watch. Okay. I think they were very careful to say wearables for a reason. And I think that there might be other wearables, maybe in addition to a watch. And I know that Android Wear said the same thing because they just say Android Wear, not Android Watch, and they want to be more general. But I think that something like integrating technology into your clothing that's machine washable could be very compelling because I'm going to put that on anyway. And if they can make it cheap and not get destroyed in the washing machine or have a very easy to remove component that where the rest of it can be put in the washing machine, I think that's pretty compelling. Quite possibly. Uh, when they said wearable, I thought it was just a matter of branding, that they're trying to distance from it being called a watch because with a watch, you have a certain amount of expectations that this device may or may not meet. And it could be that it's called wearable because it's banned. It could be it's called wearable because they have more grand plans. And I'm hoping that it's the latter. Yeah. One last thing, the uh, 3X that I saw your tweet earlier about how uh, it will, that iOS will show 3X retina images by default instead of 2X retina images. Mm -hmm. It makes me inclined to think that you're right about the idea of at least the 5.5 inch iPhone having 3X. I am Still hoping that the 4.7 has 3x as well. Yeah, I would hope so too. Because otherwise its density is not very good compared to other products. 
Yeah, it just seems bizarre, the idea of there being a top-tier iPhone that's 5.5 inches having a much higher DPI and using 3X while they have a lower-tier 4.7 that doesn't. Mm -hmm. If anything, it makes it where app developers will be less likely to do a 3X image. How many 5.5-inch iPhones are they going to sell compared to the 4.7-inch iPhones? Yeah, I agree. Hopefully everything will be 3X. Fingers crossed for 3X. Okay, I think this is a good place to end the show. Thank you for listening to Aliens Land here. If you have any comments, please go to our webpage at alh.fm and go to the feedback section. If you want to send us a comment on Twitter, you can follow us at Aliens Land here and send us a message there. We'd really appreciate hearing from you. We'd really appreciate iTunes reviews. Uh, and have a great day. See you next time. Oh, man. I didn't get a chance to read through my giant list of complaints of the article. <laughs> well, if you want to go into it, you can piece it together in the after show. Missing proxy settings. This is an administration issue normal users shouldn't have to worry about. PowerPoint had an external link to a YouTube video that wasn't working. The this is an application design issue that wasn't solvable probably due to a legal issue. She rightly assumed that it should just work. PowerPoint probably should have warned her that content may not be accessible when she goes to a different network and maybe displayed a message. And maybe it did. I'm not familiar enough with PowerPoint to know. Kids that use Facebook, Twitter, etc. are not, it does not demonstrate that they can use computers. And this is exactly showing that they can use computers. They're accomplishing their goal with a computer. They're doing it quickly, not thinking too much. The the kid had a virus e example, whereas where his computer was completely filled with malware. Now this this is probably because he didn't update his computer properly. This is the system's fault. This isn't really his fault. The the computer won't turn on example with a monitor. Now most modern computers are laptops that don't need a separate power for their monitor. It's reasonable for a computer user to be unaware of this. It would be nice if they had better troubleshooting skills, but that's not really a problem with using a computer. Uh, another car example for there, uh, if I gave someone who's only ever used a handbrake for parking, I would not necessarily expect them to know where the a foot parking brake is. Won't connect to the internet due to wireless switch we covered. Uh, not reading air message we covered. iPhone data loss. This is an administration issue. Modern phones back up automatically anyway. And this could also have been solved for them by going to an Apple store, which is an administrator. And it was solved by going to a different administrator, which was him. False claims of a virus. This is similar to the phishing issue where a user should understand uh, how people can be dishonest and is a general try not to be gullible issue. Parents. It, I agree that parents should figure out, th uh, let the kids figure that things out on their own if they can because it builds valuable skills. Schools. I think that schools should offer classes in all three trees of, uh, that I had mentioned, uh, for computing because there's value to be had in all three of them, but it's not necessary that all kids do all three. Uh, for security, yes, uh, the kids were, Yes, Google does have bounties for bugs, uh, but that's sort of like having con uh, money that they offer for a lockpicking contest. When you're not having a lockpicking contest, you probably don't want people going to your front door and trying to pick the lock. That That's just not appropriate. That said, unless they had malicious intent, their actions probably should not be punished heavily. 
Okay, that was my list. You know what made me laugh was the whole use Linux thing on there. Oh, I the use Linux thing. Yeah, that's another thing that, that use Linux is another thing that condescending geeks like to say. <laughs> Until it's the year of the desktop. Yeah. In which case, stop using Linux. Start using FreeBSD. I don't know. <laughs> uh, did you see the Penn and Teller show? That no. That's something I wanted to ask you about. No, I haven't had a chance yet. But do you understand the concept of the show? My understanding is that they do a magic trick and then they explain how it works. No. Actually, most no? of the tricks are not explained. Okay. So the way that it goes is the magician has an opportunity to be the opening act for Penn and Teller uh, when they go to Las Vegas. In order to win this, they have to fool Penn and Teller. They have to do the trick, and Penn and Teller have to not be able to guess on their very first attempt how the trick was performed. The one that I had linked you was particularly entertaining. I don't know if you want me to go over it or if you want to watch it yourself. Yeah, go over it and send me the link again since I'm in front of a machine. I'll take a look after you okay, leave. Okay, so, so the, one, the one that I sent you was particularly entertaining. It was a card trick. He has uh, the audience pick out a card. So it's, it, the, uh, but he does that by throwing a ball around. And so it's, you know that it's an actually randomly picked card. He has a box in the center of his table and he opens the box and he says, this is a very special deck of card because there's only three marked cards on this. And he goes and he shuffles it and he pulls out three cards and he says, your card is, or something along those lines. And then he takes the rest of the cards and he spreads them out like a fan on the table and it spells out in words what the card was. I mean, when he was shuffling the deck, it looked like there was, it was just, it looked like they were all just blank cards. Hmm. And so Penn and Teller conferred for a little bit and they said, or Penn said, because Teller doesn't really talk. <laughs> he said, you know, that was really masterfully done. But even when a magician looks like they don't care about something, they really do. And in your case, there was this box and that box looked like it was just an, ornamental and a beautiful box and a great place to keep your cards but i think it means something and there was a little bit of clarification and he's saying i think that there is something inside that box that was not the deck of cards that you pulled out and the contestant he go he says can i show him can i show him and so he walks over to the box and he holds it up to pen and inside is just a single piece of paper that says no <laughs> <laughs> nice nice i thought that was so brilliant okay i gotta go so i will talk to you later okay catch you later all right bye-bye we entirely forgot to make ourselves unemployable at a company oh well